As a young boy, you are placed into a foster family. The caseworker that placed you there was supposed to protect you. But when one of the many visits makes them suspicious about your treatment under your foster dad, the known and respected scholar intervenes. He will not let this visit ruin the experiment he worked so hard on. He will need to make sure that the statute of limitations that can get him behind bars expires. This is the case of the German experiment that placed dozens of kids in the hands of pedophiles. Are you looking at this title holding your breath, with your butt clenched, just holding for your dear, dear life? Well, I hate to break it to you, but that really won't stop after you hear about this case. We are back in the pedophilia zone, god, the scums of the earth that I find on the internet, and not even by polluting my Google search history. Nope. This was yet another New York Times long-form article that came in my newsletter that I couldn't resist. One other really good case that I've done is the suicide cluster in Missouri. You can watch that video after this one, or if this is too hard of a topic to swallow, I truly wouldn't blame you. This one calls for a disclaimer, so let's go! The following content contains themes of pedophilia and child abuse. It is meant for adult audiences only. Viewer discretion is very much so advised. Disclaimer being given, and because it's not going to get any more comfortable, Maya is the name, and the experiment that wildly placed little children in hands of pedophiles is the game of the day. Trust me, I'd love to sit here and tell you, oh, you know what I have seen in my newsletter, and my willpower allowed me to resist it and allowed me to sleep at night without reading it as a whole at once? But that didn't happen, and we are here. So let us dive in. And let's begin this story with Marco. Our story begins in 2015, when a political scientist, Teresa Nentwig, was commissioned by the Senate in Berlin to publish a study on Helmut Kentler's pedosexual experiment that he conducted in Berlin in the 1960s. The first report, under the name Kentler's Project, was published in 2016 by the University of Göttingen. And a couple of months after reading that report, a guy named Marco looked up Teresa Nantwing's number. When Teresa picked up the phone, Marco identified as an affected person. He said that he has heard about a man from the report, Helmut Kentler, because Marco's foster father spoke to the man on the weekly basis. And this man, this psychologist, just seemed really interested in all of the aspects of Marco's upbringing. Up to this point, Teresa and the group of people behind Kentler's report thought that this experiment ended in 1960s, but Marco said that he only moved out of his foster father's house in 2003, when he was 21 years old. So, let us dive into Marco's story. When Marco was five years old, the event that will eventually end up placing him in a foster home will take place. You see, Marco was a child of a Palestinian refugee who at that time divorced his mom and left the family, leaving his mom to work at a sausage stand. And, well, that was just making the ends meet. Marco and his older brother would spend about 11 hours a day in daycare, 
which also meant that they were left unsupervised rest of the time and they would just wander the streets. So one day when Marco was five, he was just crossing the road and a car hit him. And this injury wasn't grave, but it attracted the attention of youth welfare office that was run by Berlin state government. So this case worker spoke to his mom and told her that they are going to place him in a foster home with family-like atmosphere. This would lead Marco to be assigned to live with a 47-year-old man called Henkel, who was like the electronics repairman. He'd be the guy that you'd call if your jukebox needed repairs. And he was also earning money from fostering other children, because Marco would not be the only child that Henkel would foster. He actually had seven other boys that were all older than Marco at this point. And even in 1973, which would be 15 years before Marco was placed with Henkel at the age of five, a teacher noticed that Henkel was always looking for contact with boys, with other boys and with his foster sons. Six years after that, in 1979, another caseworker observed that he appeared to be in a homosexual relationship with one of his foster sons. But when the public prosecutor launched an investigation, Helmut Kentler, who called himself Henkel's permanent advisor, intervened. Kentler at the time was a known scholar who authored several books on sex education and parenting and was often seen either on TV programs or was featured in German's leading newspapers. So let's first talk about him. The two names can sound really similar. So Kentler is the mad scientist, is the psychologist, but yeah, let's call him mad scientist. And then Henkel is the pedophile father. So now we're talking about Kentler, about the mad scientist. 15 plus years after the war, in 1960s Germany, people in certain circles would view sex with children not as taboo, but rather as progressive, rather as a way forward. One such person would be viewed as a visionary and one of Germany's most prominent sexologists. But he didn't start there. Lesser-known fact about Kentler is that he actually wanted to study theology in order to become a pastor. Instead, his dad really wanted him to have some trade up his sleeve, to basically undertake some vocational training. So, Kentler completed an apprenticeship as a locksmith and then studied electrical engineering. After his dad died, he changed direction again and trained as the interpreter in English and French, after which he studied psychology, medicine, education, and philosophy. Apparently, he studied all of this and, like, graduated in all of it in 1960. So, in 1960, he got his main diploma in psychology. Post his graduation, he worked as a youth education officer. He also worked as a research assistant. And during his work on youth-related topics, he would develop theory of the emancipatory youth work. He'd publish on it, he'd write on it, and this was what made him known worldwide. By the time Marco will be placed with his foster family, Kentler was already the head of the Department of Social Pedagogy and Adult Education at the Pedagogical Center in Berlin. 
He received a doctorate in Hanover, and his dissertation was under a title, Parents Learn Sexual Education. And also, he published a book under the same title. His Lazy Ass just published his dissertation as a book that would eventually sell over 30,000 copies, so yay, I guess. And in 1976, he was appointed as a university lecturer teaching vocational school teachers for special education at the University of Hanover, where he stayed until he retired in 1996. Because of his expertise, the power this man had was immense. He would sit on multiple pedagogical advisory boards that were all sponsored by Berlin Senate. But that wasn't all. During the student riots in Berlin, he would also be an advisor, sort of like a psychological consultant for police issues. And he would use the newfound sexual liberation movements of Berlin students and turn this into his driving force for the advocacy of the emancipatory sexual education within your own home. So, by the end of 1960s, he would start placing several neglected 13 to 15-year-old boys with pedophiles he knew through his connections, claiming that this would reintegrate the kids into the society and allow them to grow into mature adults. But he knew what he was doing was wrong because he only made this experiment known to the public over a decade later. Because he knew that by that point, statute of limitations on all of those charges would also be expired. So, let's discuss his views at the point when Marco was placed with Henkel. What were Kentler's views? What was his ridiculous hypothesis for even doing something like this? First things first, parents shouldn't be putting any obstacles on the way to their child's sexual desires. Now you're like, say what? That's not all. Parents should actually, from a very young age, introduce their children to sexuality, to different forms of sexuality. Otherwise, they're risking their child becoming this underdeveloped, crippled individual. This further means that you can't maintain a healthy relationship with your parent unless your parent allows you to experiment in whichever way, shape, or form you desire. And the earlier, the better. By the early teenage years, you have to engage in sexual experience. Otherwise, you don't demand an independent world out of teenagers, and you don't reject adult norms. How dare you? Not to pull out my criminal minds cards, kind of seems like you might have uh, hated your own parents, in a way. Kind of seems like a bit of a personal issue between a parent and a son here that you have just imposed onto the whole world because your dad didn't let you get laid. Or maybe it's that beautiful incel face that you have that didn't allow you to get laid. One or the other. Because of his own suppressed issues that he never dealt with, he differentiated between sexual abuse of children and voluntary sexual relationship with your own children. Quote, sexually satisfied children who are... I can't deal with this today. Actually, this might be my last straw. Sexually satisfied children who have a good relationship of trust with their own parents, especially in sexual matters, are best protected against sexual seduction and sexual attacks. Who taught this guy? What books did he read in freaking Germany? Post-war Nazi Germany. What books did you read, mate? 
Where, where did this, how does this even cross your mind? No, I need you to talk to me about your childhood. I really need you to sit down and just break it all the fuck down because some messed up shit happened there. The quote doesn't end there. I had to open a cocktail to deal with this. He would warn parents against being concerned over rape or molestation charges. He said the wrong thing to do would be for parents to lose their nerve, panic, and run straight to the police. If the adult had been considerate and tender, the child could have even enjoyed sexual contact with him. The could-have part really makes me think that he knows 100% that they are not, and that this is rape and sexual molestation. But we digress and we continue. Because he was such an expert on all of these topics, with the newspapers, the site, describing him as the nation's chief authority on questions of sexual education, when that first time the psychologist came to him about Henkel in 1973, he explained and offered his expert opinion. He said that he knows Henkel through a research project, he commended him on his parenting skills, and said that all of these are some wild interpretations. Sometimes an airplane is not a phallic symbol. It is simply a plane. And because of him, any further criminal investigation would get suspended. What is a plane in this situation? Where is the sky? The sky ain't blue in this case. I'm telling you that. Like, oh my god. Like, this thing makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> Based on his academic background, we know how Kentler got to be an authoritative figure on this subject. But what got him so radicalized? That's where we kind of need to go into his childhood. Or rather, as I still keep saying, the part of the childhood that we know about. Because I have a feeling he hid a lot, a lot from us. I feel like there's some like underlying issues here. But this is as much as we know. From the early age, you would not be surprised to learn that Kentler's father was, well, a lieutenant in First World War, meaning he applied similar policies at home. There was not much vulnerability going on. There was no much affection at all. Kentler actually remembers this time when they were hiking, like, in the forest, and he even tried to, like, just take his father's hand. He was little, and his father kind of just, like, pushed it away, brushed it off. His parents followed the teachings of the best-selling German authority on child care at the time, this guy called Daniel Schreber. Schreber, in his writings, would outline the principles of caring for a child that would rid them of cowardice, laziness, and unwanted displays of vulnerability and desire. I'm sorry, the next line is the most German thing I have ever read in my life. Suppress everything in the child, Schreber wrote in 1858. This bitch, like, lived in the 90s. What do you mean? You're listening to somebody from 1858. Emotions must be suffocated in their seed right away. Cue Wendy Williams saying death to all. And you too, Mrs. Spears. Death to all of them. Oh, 
Whenever Kentler would misbehave, his dad would threaten to buy a contraption that was actually invented by Schreber. And this contraption was one of those bands that would keep your posture upright. So, like, shoulder bands to prevent for you from slouching, a belt that would hold your chest in place when you were sleeping. <laughs> Such subtle nightmares. An iron bar that would press to your collarbone so that you sit up straight at the table. And every time Kentler would try to speak up, just say something during, like, a family dinner, his dad would say, when father speaks, children must remain silent. So that was a great family atmosphere. Kentler was 10 in 1938 when Kristallnacht was taking place, when Nazi Germans were raiding Jewish temples, houses, stores, different properties, and basically either killing them on the spot or transporting them to Auschwitz. And at this point, one Jewish family kind of like sheepishly knocked on the door of the Kentlers because their place has been raided, asking to sleep over there. And the dad kind of said, no, that just won't be possible. And Kentler just remembered that and how his dad from that point on just seemed laughable to him. And those thoughts persisted because then his dad returned to serve in the army as the colonel. He would get to work at the high command of the Army of Nazi Germany, and this is how Kentler saw that. My father's authority was never based on his own accomplishment, but on the large institutions in which he snuck into, that rubbed off on him. He was 17 when the Nazis were defeated, and his father came home, a broken man. I never obeyed him, and I felt terribly alone." This is where Kentler was after the war ended, and he saw that this sexuality was still repressed. It's as if the children of the people that were in the war suffering under Nazis were kind of just jammed these new ethics and morality values into them. What triggered him in particular were that women's reproductive rights were restricted, and also that homosexuals were prosecuted as if homosexuality was a crime for the two decades after the war, and that he was hearing about 100,000 people being prosecuted for something that should never have been considered as a crime. Around that time, Kentler also realized that he himself was attracted to men. And obviously, he couldn't just go to his father and tell him that, or nobody in his family for that matter. So he found solace in this book called Corridon by Andre Gide. He would later go on to say that this book took away his fear of being a failure and being rejected. And he would also go on to write his own essays on homosexuality. But he said that nothing could really repair his relationship with his parents and that they no longer loved him. He goes on to graduate in psychology and then get a doctorate in social education, writing an essay under the title Parents Learn Sex Education in 1975. And this dissertation book later was inspired by the Marxist psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich. This Wilhelm dude argued that the free flow of sexual energy was essential to building a new kind of society. So, Kentler's dissertation would go on to urge parents to teach their children that they should never be ashamed of their desires. And this is where we left it off, with his emancipating sexual education, with the premise that children are also sexual beings and they have the right to express their sexuality. 
And what really worked into his favor was the society at the time. In the late 1960s, children of all of these Nazi soldiers, or just like the later offspring, started wondering what people were getting up to. Why did this war actually happen? This meant that all of the traditional authoritarian moral values are suddenly under scrutiny. They're getting reevaluated. Now, he had to do better than that to convince the youth office, to convince the Senate. So, ladies and gents, this is the hypothesis. This is why children were placed in the hands of pedophiles. To prevent another Auschwitz. Strong. Bold. I'm gonna say bold. How, uh, how do we know that this is definitely gonna prevent another Auschwitz? Well, We know that Kentler puts sexual repression and fascism into the same basket, right? So, in 1977, Kentler reads this book, Male Fantasies, by the sociologist. And this book recaps the diaries of German paramilitary fighters and concludes that their drives, along with the fear of anything sexual, anything liberating, would get channeled into a different outlet, destruction. Basically, if they're not getting laid from a very early age and then onwards, they will destroy. Another war might happen, and he's about to prevent it. Yes, the girl in the back? Doesn't make any sense, yeah? I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just literally here telling the story. This goddamn story, of course it doesn't make sense. <sighs> to think that this guy was a psychologist. This guy was a psycho- This guy studied this. He graduated in it. He wrote essays on it. And he was like, nope, left turn, left turn. And now remember Schreiber, the guy that his dad was inspired by and whose books he read? Well, he kind of had a beef to strike with Schreiber, right? He had to prove everything opposite from him. Because Schreber poisoned three generations of Germans, creating these authoritarian personalities who have to identify with the great man around them to feel great themselves. Well, Kentler was to turn that around and develop the child-rearing philosophy for a new kind of a German man. Sexual liberation, he wrote, was the best way to prevent another Auschwitz. But now this is a tough task, because how do you suddenly flip all of the thoughts that people have had in the past? Well, you need to do one thing. You need to reconfigure the relationships. And yet again, here he sort of sees this being supported by the society at the time. Because in the late 60s, educators in more than 30 German cities and towns established these experimental daycare centers where children were actually encouraged to be naked in order to explore each other's bodies. And what would really help him bring this to the forefront would be, a few years later, Germany would establish this Green Party, which would bring together a bunch of people who were really just anal about certain things, like anti-war protesters, environmental activists, veterans of the student movement, trying to address the oppression of children's sexuality. And these members of this party advocated for abolishment of the age of consent for sex between children and adults. 
So now he has his hand in the academic waters. He is known in this area. He meddled in political waters and he has connections there. So what is left? Education. Kentler was asked to lead the Department of Social Education at the Pedagogical Center, this international research institute in Berlin, and this is when the funding would pour from the Berlin Senate, and the Senate fully supervised this pedagogical center and was aware of every single thing that happened. So in 1965, Kentler started working on the problem that were runaways, heroin addicts, young sex workers many of whom would meet at the zoo station, the main transportation hub in West Berlin. Now, did your parents make you read this book? The children, we children from the station zoo. Or are you not traumatized? Are you just normal? Yeah, your parents never made you read this book? Good. Good, thank them. My parents were like, she will not do drugs. She will read the most morbid book. And then they wonder how the hell am I into true crime? Please. This station is where Kentler would befriend a 13-year-old boy called Ulrich. This boy was a sex worker. Again, not by choice. None of this happened by choice, and this is something that never resonated with Kentler. And this boy, Ulrich, mentioned this guy that would do laundry for them, would kind of feed them, provide them with shelter sometimes to multiple boys at this station, and they called this guy Mother Winter. This guy was, of course, a pedophile, grooming and using these teenage boys who had no other options. But Kentler heard this, and he said, well, if they call him Mother, that can't be that bad. Ulrich's advantage here is that he was handsome, and he enjoyed sex, which means that he had something to offer. He had something to give to the pedophile that was looking after him. So it was just like exchange of favors. Instead of hearing this and like running to the police, saving this boy, maybe offering him a home yourself, making sure that he's not traumatized for life, Kentler decides to formalize this arrangement between Ulrich and Mother Winter, his pedophile. So he goes to the Senate, the Senate officer approves it, and he just starts matchmaking these children that are vulnerable on the street, and pedophiles. And of course, the benefit for the Berlin Senate was the outlook, how they're going to look towards the world, because this is going to solve life problems of the society. Homelessness, drug addictions, sex work, prostitution. Berlin's reputation of freedom and humanity is going to be what the world is going to see which would replace the thought everybody else in the world had about Germans as Nazis, Germans that we all thought about when we think World War II. Once the boys were placed with the foster families, then Kentler would meet up with the foster parent, usually a male figure, and the foster child, and he would have consultations with them on multiple occasions. And his conclusions here were, of course, positive. Of course, he thought this was working. The child was off the streets. They suddenly started going to school. They were disciplined at home. And these pedophiles were putting up with them because they were in love with them. If there were ever any files about how this project got approved in the first place, they were destroyed. When he would publicly discuss the details about these foster homes with the Senate, he only offered up details about three of them. But in a 2020 report, 
Scholars from the University of Hildesheim concluded that the Senate also ran foster homes or shared flats for young people in Berlin with pedophile men in other parts of West Germany, so not just Berlin. No names would be revealed in this report, but the authors wrote that these foster homes were run by powerful men, men who were given power by academia, research institutions, and different environments that either accepted, supported, or even lived out pedophile stances. Gentler was allowed to conduct his experiment in 1969 when he worked at the Berlin Pedagogical Center. His hypothesis was that a sexual relationship with older men would help the boys to be socialized. In mid-June 2020, researchers from the University of Hildesheim released a report ordered by Berlin's Senate Department for Education, Youth and Family. Among other things, the researchers were given access to a foster family case file. Fritz H. had eight boys and adolescents in his care from 1973 to 2003. Fritz H. was about 50 when six-year-old Marco went to live with him. Two years later, he adopted Sven. He was eight. That was a dramatic way to tell you we are going back to the story to pick up from Marco's account of events. Marco's early memories from living under Henkel was just how impressed he was by everything. The house was huge. It was a flat on the third floor of this building. It had five bedrooms. He had siblings that didn't really care much about him, but he didn't care. Henkel actually even had this cage with rabbits that Marco took care of, and he finally didn't have to spend all of his time on the streets. Henkel and Kentler had a habit where every few months Henkel would travel about 200 miles to Hanover to visit Kentler with his foster children. And there Kentler would be asking Marco and the rest of the foster children how do they feel, how are they progressing, what are their circumstances like, basically noting everything down because of this experiment that he was conducting. And Marco just remembered that after some time, he doesn't even know if he was saying anything, he just remembers in the pictures that they would take with both of them how he just looked bored and just hazed, just like he wanted to disassociate from that whole experience. Marco was living with Henkel for about a year when Sven got adopted. Sven was seven at the time. He was abandoned. Apparently, his parents came from Romania and they just abandoned him in one of the subway stations, leaving him sick with hepatitis. Because of that, the Youth Welfare Office was made aware of Sven and they saw perfect candidate in Henkel to place yet another child in his care. Marco describes this next thing as the two of them taking kind of two completely different roles in this family. Sven was friendlier, he was more docile, more obedient, whereas Marco was more defiant. But still, when Henkel would come into his room at night to cuddle, which we don't know the extent where this went to, but we can only suppose that this was probably more than cuddling, that he wouldn't disobey because he didn't know for anything else. And also the way Marco describes it, it makes it sound like he thought he owed him something. 
he accepted it out of loyalty because he didn't know of anything else. He didn't know how parents, fathers should act with their children, and it would also mean that he has a roof above his head. One night, Marco would actually take a knife and put it underneath his pillow, so when Henkel approached him, he kind of like put a knife to him, and he said Henkel had this calming appearance, like nothing could face him, and in that moment, Marco just invented a story. He just said, there are devils behind my wall. And Henkel just calmly explained to him that there are no such thing as devils. And Marco surrendered the knife. From this account of events, both Marco and Sven were aware of what was going on, that Henkel was abusing both of them. They kind of knew by the room being open and one of them not being outside, but they never spoke about it until left. I'm going to put some bits from the interview they had done, just so you have a break from my voice, and because they word it so well, the only catch is it's in German, so just play the subtitles that are on the screen, please. Wir sind äh, nie zum, zum Beispiel zum Arzt, zum Untersuchung oder hast du nicht gesehen mal hingegangen? Bevor das erstmal passiert, hatte man sich wirklich intensiv so mit den Themen und dem ganzen Schema so auseinandergesetzt, bis er uns dann in der Lage war, uns zu instruieren, das und das habt ihr den Arzt zu sagen, das und das lasst ihr weg. Ich habe Anweisungen, Geschreie und wenn man nicht die gerne gerade paniert hat, gab es Trübe. Äh, Und es wurde auch immer erwähnt, dass er nicht umschlägt, sondern den Teufel in uns. Also der Mann war ein kompletter äh, Kollege Psychopath meiner Meinung nach. And there were other reasons why Marco obliged. And that was because of the threats. Henkel would threaten Marco and Sven and all of the other foster siblings that if they misbehave, they will end up on the street. This is the moment where I had a question of where was Marco's family? Did they ever come looking? Why did they just leave this to happen? And of course, and of course, we gotta talk about power here. His mom and dad were separated. There's no way someone's gonna give back Marco to his mom when she's working at a sausage stand, doesn't really have enough resources to provide, compared to a five-bedroom flat, compared to Henkel having all of the support that he wished for by this psychologist guy from academia praised in all of the newspapers and on all of the TV outlets. Marco's mom and brother were allowed to visit once a month, but Henkel would often cancel those visits last minute or would cut them short, and he would then complain to authorities, to caseworkers, that these visits would be disruptive. After these visits, Marco would sometimes wet the bed or he would start like misbehaving in school, writing letters backwards, just like he would be all confused, like why is this happening? Like why don't my parents want me? Why is Henkel saying that they don't want me? Who can I trust? But Henkel, like an evil SOB that he was, used this to prove that it was those visits by his parents that were the disruptive ones. That's what was causing the disruption. To add oil to that fire, Marco's father was never allowed to visit him. And that is because Henkel spread this story around 
of how Marco was beaten so badly in the past by his father that now, even if he was to see somebody of an Arab background on the street, he would lose it. He would just, like, not be able to handle it. So this would be really upsetting if Marco was allowed to see his own father. Marco's teachers recommended him to see a child therapist, and this therapist was supposed to meet with Marco for two hours every week. But this therapist would later report that Henkel would literally either be sitting right next to him or in the next room listening in. When a school psychologist would refer Sven to counseling, Henkel wouldn't allow him to go. He also wouldn't allow him to take any psychological test. So red flags were popping up left, right, and center, and that's when Kentler would step in. And he would say, well, okay, if you are saying any psychological evaluations need to be done, I'm qualified, I'm going to perform them. And after speaking with Marco and Henkel, he would conclude, yes, Henkel could be harsh, but somebody who is taking care of so many foster children, that is not a simple person. That will be person with issues. It's taking a toll on him. Maybe he should be the one seeing a psychiatrist. He would conclude that what Mr. Henkel needed from the authorities was trust and protection. Yeah, let's make sure we protect Henkel really well. When Marco was 10, there was a hearing with his parents about custody, about extended hours that his own biological parents should be able to spend with him. And, of course, the SOB Henkel coached him as to what to say, and Marco spoke with Judge privately, but Henkel was just behind the door, and he would scream, like, if you are being threatened, just call out, just to remind Marco, yet again, who is in power. So, Marco said that he doesn't really want to see his dad, that he's still frightened, and when it comes to his mom, that he doesn't want to see her often. And even when he does, that he would prefer a papa to be there, referring to Henkel. Later, this report will expose that people in the Senate were also observing and preventing these hearings, further hearings, further help that Marco could have gotten. <laughs> After this hearing, it will come as no surprise to you that the judge banned Marco from seeing his mom for the next few years, and he said that he shouldn't be seeing his father at all because this man is clearly a bad influence in his life. This disapproval of any man in Marco's biological family would, of course, be driven by Kentler, because he just always had some unresolved issues with the men in his family. Kentler never met the man in Marco's biological family, but yet he managed to find out how his brother looked like, and his brother was, like, really tall and just big. 
And to Handler, this meant that the boy gives the false impression of strength and superiority. He was already molding himself in his father's image. He was addicted to being the big man. During his early teenage years, Marco just found that he was isolating further and further. He would be spending all of his time behind closed doors in his room playing video games. And the two of them would be conditioned by Henkel to just keep it quiet. He would sometimes say when neighbors would be playing loud music, breaking the silence in Henkel's apartment, that he wanted to drill holes in two microwaves and then aim the radioactive waves towards each other at just the right angle in order to give these neighbors a heart attack. So he was super chill and relaxed to be around. After the two years have passed and Marco could see his mom again, it would only happen with the social worker present and every few weeks. And Henkel, of course, orchestrated for Marco to just misbehave, for him not to make eye contact with his mother and to just like reject any gifts, any affection from her. And then the social worker would just like call home and Henkel would say that he fully supported Marco in rejecting his birth parents. A year and a half after that, Marco's dad was moving back to Syria and he reached out to see his son one last time and uh, Henkel just never communicated that. He just never responded to that and the two of them never encountered each other. And at this point, it's both coaching by Henkel, but also it's what he hears him tell him about his parents at home. He was conditioned to think of his mother as this lazy woman spending her days eating sausages because she worked at a sausage stand, so of course she must be consuming them. Like, there's something wrong with that. And Henkel would say that his dad was a violent patriarch. Everything we should be standing about because, you know, we are preventing Auschwitz here, son. So it will only be decades later, once Marco actually realized that his parents fought to have a relationship with him. When Marco was 11 years old, Henkel adopted yet another foster son. This is a truly tragic story, but also a quick sideline as to why I think he was reporting children that were young, and that is because pedophiles almost always have a certain age preference, because they're sick in their fucking head. So, usually when, you know, Marcos, when all of the older brothers would be outgrowing that age preference, well, he had to find younger victims. And one such younger victim was Marcel Kramer. Marcel was a year younger than Marco, but he had spastic quadriplegia, which is this condition that left him unable to walk, talk, or eat on his own. This also meant that Marco and Sven became his caretakers, feeding him this strawberry-flavored milk and removing mucus from his lungs with his suction hose. Both Marco and Sven really tried to do anything to bring this child up, but of course this wasn't a household where he will get proper care, because his caretaker wanted A, money, and B, to use this child for his sexual gratification. So both Marco and Sven actually watched Marcel die. 
Henkel's evil genius didn't just end at home. He would be encouraging Marco to misbehave in school. Like, if he spat in class, if he spoke up to his teachers, he would reward him. He would be giving him video games. Further just isolating the guy, not allowing him to have any friends. Further just making sure that the home is the only place that he wanted to be under his control. And also, this had a second purpose, which meant that Marco would be switching classes and switching schools often, which would mean that Henkel and his evil contraption that he had going on here would stay undiscovered. The rest of Marco's teenage years in the house were just different kind of hell. Marco started resisting. And soon enough, when Marco would either slap him or just not allow Henkel to get into his room, Henkel stopped assaulting him. But he would get punitive in different ways. He would block Marco's access to the kitchen overnight. He was saying that Marco was displaying greed when it comes to food. And he would often hit him, and Marco would hit him back. He didn't care. But whenever Henkel hit him, he would say that he's hitting the devil inside of him. When Marco turned 18, he could have legally moved out, but he said that it didn't even occur to him. He said he wasn't able to critically process anything. Like, he wasn't able to think for himself. Well, because, of course, in school he didn't learn that, and he didn't learn it at home. And this was also when Marcel died. And Marcel died, well, because of the lack of care from the parents, the lack of real care, because he technically should have been institutionalized or, like, put into a hospital to get care on a daily basis. But also because Henkel wouldn't call the doctors. Like, Marco has never been for a checkup. So that night when Marcel developed the flu, Marco was just lying next to him. He just knew that Henkel would not call for a doctor. And Marcel just stopped breathing later that night. And the foster care files, yeah, they were notified of this. They just made a brief note that Henkel made a call saying that his foster son died unexpectedly and that he had no previous infections, no, never before, and that he, now 60, is looking to adopt yet another foster child. Marco finally moved out in 2003 when he was 21, and he at first had nowhere to live. He was just sleeping on the benches, basically homeless on the street. And this is when this charity, assisting homeless youths, moved him into this apartment. And this is when it finally hit him, living in this apartment, of how incapable he is at just living, surviving, knowing basic day-to-day things that you should do, that you have to pay for bills, how to communicate with people, because he was spending so much time on his own. So even at night, when he would wake up, which was a habit that he developed taking care of uh, his younger foster brother, Marcel, he would just not be able to move. He would just start examining his own body, and he said he was seeing if everything is still where it should be, and proving to himself that he still exists. When Marco was 26, there was this moment on the train that really resonated for him how much of Henkel's traits he actually managed to pick up. 
So he just wanted to fight somebody that day. He was on a train and even without approaching these two men to just even start up a fight, say like, what are you looking at? he immediately just started fighting them. And one of these men ended up in an emergency room. And Marco said about this, that this was such a Henkel reaction, that he identified at that moment as a product. He was turning into something that Henkel has made. Around this time, luckily though, he was spotted on the street by this photographer who complimented him on his looks and asked him if he wanted to do some modeling. So he did. He would sort of like do it here and there. This person passed him on to somebody else. And because of this modeling, he went and had a haircut. And at this hair salon, he met this woman and she was like really chatty, really nice to him. As Marco would later say, he was pretty and she didn't leave. Some women are just into asshole types, and I was one of those asshole types. And at first, he was resisting this kind of relationship. He didn't know how that would work because he didn't know how to function in the real world, but Emma was persisting, so soon he finally caved. At the time this New York Times article came out, Marco and Emma had two children. This journalist described him as a playful guy who was sharing his views on the afterlife, sharing his children's milestones with pride. And just in general, it seemed that Marco did what he himself called reprogramming his own life. It's like he finally managed to turn that page completely leave everything else behind and just learn everything from scratch by himself on his own. A few days before this journalist went to visit Marco and Emma, Berlin Senate announced that it would commission scholars at the University of Hildesheim, those who have published the report in 2020, to do a follow-up about pedophile-run foster homes in other parts of Germany. Because remember, I told you it didn't happen just in Berlin. The Senator for Education, Sandra Shears, offered her apologies to Marco and Sven, and the Senate offered them around 50,000 euros, which, according to this journalist, sounds low, but in Germany it isn't. It would be low in places like US, and in my opinion, still hella low. 16 years of living with a pedophile and a psychopath, and nah, that's just not enough. And this is when this right-wing politician for Alternative for Germany party contacted Marco and Sven, asking them to keep fighting and not to accept this money. But Marco knew how the world works by now, and he knew that he doesn't want to be a pawn in somebody's political agenda. So he actually just accepted Senate's compensation. But his only goal was for the Senate to actually publish all of the names of the people involved in carrying out Kentler's experiment. At the time of the article, Marco and Emma were just about to get married and he planned to take Emma's last name. He said he hadn't spoken with his birth parents or his brother since he was 10 and taking Emma's last name would make him nearly untraceable. And he is completely fine with leaving this in the past, just like the whole relationship with Henkler. It's probably too hard to even think about, like once you turn your leaf, you're like, no, this is my life now. At the eve of his wedding, he emailed the journalist saying, in an hour around 10 a.m., we will drive to the registry office. 
symbolically a new life begins. This got me, this got me real good. And when it comes to Henkel, after leaving his home, Marco only had contact with him twice. First was when Marco was in his mid-twenties. Henkel called him and asked him if he remembered to feed the rabbits. And Marco said like he must have been developing some form of dementia. And next time was in 2015, when Emma was pregnant with her first child. He heard that Henkel was in a hospice dying of cancer. And Marco here opened the door to Henkel's room, saw him in bed, groaning in pain, gazed at him for about five seconds just to confirm that he's dying, that he's really in pain, and then he went out and shut the door, as he should. And it was only with the death of Henkel that Marco finally realized his voice was becoming stronger and stronger. His inner voice was finally prevailing that he doesn't have to live the life the way Henkel taught him and that he can keep going. So, what happened to Kentler? Well, despite of all of the accusations surfacing while he was still alive, he was never prosecuted because by the time all of these victims came forward, he made sure that that statute of limitations would be expired. So, I looked this up and the statute of limitations for severe sexual coercion in Germany is 20 years and for the less serious cases was 10. And in cases where the victim is minor, the time frame begins once the child turns 18 years old. And the fact that the statute of limitations expired just played a crucial role in depriving these victims of getting any compensation and just making sure that he is in prison. Kentler died in 2008, leaving behind papers describing this entire experiment as a complete success. But he admitted that it was clear to everybody involved that this did break the law. And why did all of this happen? What were the conclusions in the end? Well, we might never know, because the last manuscript by Kentler, called Parents Under Suspicion of Sexual Abuse, was left unpublished. And one of the last conclusions that he made was that in the vast majority of cases, pederastic conditions can have a very positive effect of the personality development of a boy, especially if the pederast is a real mentor of the boy. But then he never had any real data to support that because there's no real data because this is such bullshit that people have endured. So where we are at now is that the current report from the University of Hindelsheim still hasn't been able to find out how many youngsters were exposed to pedophile foster families in Berlin and in West Germany, and that's something that Marco still wants done and just published, and for these people to get some form of compensation, some form of justice for suffering for over 30 years. Germany as a whole, after one of these reports in 2005, started implementing ads where you would see these advertisements on TV screens or U-Bahn trains asking you, do you love children a little more than you like? The new pedophile research and therapy program has been established under the name Don't Become a Perpetrator, and this campaign began in Berlin around 11 years ago and operates in 10 cities across Germany. Here we actually have the results, and about 7,000 people have made contact and asked for help, and around 1,000 pedophiles 
have received therapy. In what was likely his last recorded public statement about pedophilia in 1999, he referred to it as sexual disorder and said that there is an impossibility of an adult and a child sharing an understanding of sexual contact. The problem, he said, is that the adult will always have the monopoly on definition. So this is sort of where the things are at the moment. I hope Marco still fights for the Senate to actually really work on this case and seek justice for so many people to see if statute of limitations can be eliminated in order for these people to get some form of compensation themselves. But something that strikes me, not to end it on a morbid note, but something that one of these politicians for the Alternative Germany AFD party said was that he still believes, and he said this like after speaking with Marco, after Marco refusing to be basically used for a political agenda, that he still believes that there is a pedophile network in Germany, and those connected to it are using the political influence to ensure that the network remains under the radar. And here is where I would really like to know your thoughts, especially if you're German. I want to know if you have ever heard about this case, if you have friends, family there that are familiar with it, what is the stance in Germany on it? Do you think there is an underground pedophile ring? Because, I mean, every country has its own black market in some way. So, again, I still wouldn't be surprised because we still don't have all of the files. We don't have the files. We don't have the names. We truly don't know the extent this went to. And I would also like to know what is the stance on sexuality and sexual liberation in Germany at the moment? Because I think personally the answer to that question will then give us the answer to the question whether something like this could still be happening under the radar. So those are just some questions that I have, a lot more questions than answers after this one. But that is the truly disturbing story about the experiment that placed foster kids with pedophiles. So I will either bring you something lighter tomorrow, a bit less morbid next week, but now I shall go have a shower and just have my zen mode, have my me time, play some meditation, put myself in a nice space. As you can see, I've been recording for the past eight hours and the night has fallen upon us. So I shall be seeing you guys next week. Goodbye. Choose self with zen. Too early. Too early. Mm-mm. Don't, don't. Cut the German. You see, Marco had an older brother and he was living with his mom who was just trying to make meets end. Meets end? <laughs> But she was a son. It's make ends meet, but though I put oh God, I unintentionally made a joke because she was working at a sausage stand. God, it's like so little. It literally this case anything that lightens this case even remotely, she was making meat and it's sausage, there's no meat in it. Okay. <laughs> then what's even more debatable is what's in the vegan sausage rolls. Yeah, what the fuck is that thing about? If sausage is already just like shites of the shit. <laughs> if the sausage is already just like shite of the pig, then what is in the vegan sausage? What do you put in that? I just wish somebody today, just out of joke, please don't take this person seriously if anybody starts this, tries to prove that mass murder 
is due to people not being sexually liberated. Just imagine, like, in America, man, massacres happen on average, like, every week. Like, imagine proving that. Imagine trying to justify that. Like, no, nothing to do with their mental health. They just weren't molested as a child. Like, logic. Make it make sense. This man read books on this. I cannot emphasize that enough. He read books on this. He should have been like the voice of reason. Like, no. Molestation. Oh, my days. No, but please, just imagine coming to your parents and being like, Mom, I'm five. I have the right to express my sexuality. I was actually a really highly sexual being. When I was seven. <laughs> I was a manipulative bitch. Listen, I'm a Scorpio. I can't help it. Yeah, let's just justify it by that. Uh, I have this side of the family that is really asexual. <laughs> there was never a time and a place to tell this story. Now is the time and the place. So, my grandma and my aunt are just completely asexual beings. And uh, my grandma was basically walking me to school this day, and I just decided to, like, freak her the fuck out for some reason. I was seven. Just let me just mention that a couple of times throughout this story. So I told her how I have a crush on this guy, and how as soon as I walk into the school classroom, I'm gonna jump him. I'm gonna start kissing him. I'm gonna start taking his shirt off. That was it. I didn't know what happens beyond that point, because let me remind you again, I was seven. <laughs> And, um, yeah, my grandma kind of freaked the fuck out. <laughs> she literally ran home and spoke to my dad, being like, do we need to get her out? Has she done it already? <laughs> and my dad was like, no, she's just bullshitting you. And then he was... <laughs> and then once I returned home, I was like, Maya, you need to stop this. And just laughed. Like, lol. She fell for it. <laughs> Don't do it. Let me invent another story. <sighs> God, okay. If you have asexual parents... <laughs> May the record state, Handler was still wrong. I shouldn't have, at the age of seven, I shouldn't have known what goes beyond taking a shirt off. I probably shouldn't have known that you take the shirt off to begin with. Where did I see that? That is a good question. Tell me, <laughs> Let me just answer that question for myself. They left me watch fucking soap operas. Mistake. Crucial. Mistake. 